We return this morning to our series in the book of Romans, to which I invite you to turn your attention now, but not just to Romans, to Romans chapter 8. I say that because as I read over and over again this week, Romans chapter 8 has been for Christians the very pinnacle of the mountain range of Scripture. All Bible uh, roads lead to Romans and views afforded by the Bible are clearly seen, most clearly seen from Romans, according to J.I. Packer in his book that I'm reading again these days, Knowing God. And if Romans is the height of Scripture, then Romans 8 is considered the very peak, the climax of Romans, the Acropolis of the Bible. Someone has called that greatest of all the Pauline chapters. Godet, the Swiss commentator, called these 39 verses great because they begin with no condemnation and end with no separation, to which another writer added that in between there is also no defeat. This wondrous chapter, writes yet another, sets forth the gospel and plan of salvation, the life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man, and the righteousness of the born again, the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and the blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things for our good, every tense of the Christian life, past, present, and future, and the glorious climactic song of triumph, no separation in time or eternity from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if I may add just one more, a German commentator named Spenner said uh, that if the Bible were a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, Romans 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. I hope then that you are as excited as I am about coming to this climactic chapter in Romans and that you will join me in asking for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word today and for the weeks to come if the Lord should give them to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you will open our eyes and show us marvelous things in your law, that you will speak to us by the same Spirit who descended upon our Lord Jesus Christ at his baptism in visible form, who, is, who inspired the writing of your word, even this, these verses we're about to read, and who illumines us. We'll do so now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, we begin at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No. That's the word with which this passage begins. I know in your Bible that no doesn't come until maybe the fifth word in verse 1, and that's fine, nothing wrong with that. But it is worth remarking over the fact that in the original Greek, Paul begins this sentence with no. And it is no small no either. When you look at it in the Greek, it shouts no. It does that in two ways. For one, the sentence begins with that word, which is a way in the Greek of emphasizing the point. And on top of that, this is not the common way of saying no. Paul uses a most emphatic form of no that emphasizes doubly the fact that it, there is no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This has led some commentators to translate the sentence in ways like this. Not any, therefore, no of condemnation. And not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now, he never can be. It is impossible. Now, there may be, in the hearing of my voice right now, some people for whom that doesn't mean much at all. In fact, you find it very uninteresting. Indeed, you find it quite dull and boring, and it really is quite unmoving to you. But for those of you who know the struggle, for those of you who have known the terrible battle and too often the terrible taste of defeat and failures in your war against sin yourselves by experience, like Paul did, whose hearts have cried the same thing he did, what a wretched man I am. It may be that no passage of Scripture could mean more, be more thrilling, more encouraging, more emboldening and gladdening to your spirit than this. There is no, absolutely no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. The rest of this chapter, in one way or another, just develops this idea, not, not mere idea, this rock-solid confidence that carries the Christian from day to day through the battles until that glorious day breaks and they take their first breath of paradise. That development begins in the first four verses, so concentrated they are with mighty doctrines that they prove a challenge even to understand I know because I've poured over them myself this week and find my head spinning. There's no way we can possibly exhaust the passage or its meaning this morning, but I'll try my best to help you to see that when it comes to your salvation and the certainty of it, you may rejoice in the fact that it involves three great persons, two great works, and one great life. 
First, you may rejoice in the confidence of your salvation that there is no condemnation for you, Christian, because it, that is to say, your salvation involves three great persons. And when I say that it involves three great persons, I'm not referring to mere human persons, of course, but to the three persons of the triune head, Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are involved in procuring and securing your salvation. First, there is the Father, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sometimes we say in connection with our salvation that the The Father, God the Father, has predestined us. He has chosen us from before the foundation of the world to be his children, which is true. It's gloriously true. But we must not stop there because he did not stop there. God the Father went on to see that what he had planned was also accomplished. As John Murray put it, the initiative in the whole process of redemptive accomplishment, that is, of your salvation, must be traced to the love and grace of the Father. And how evident that love and grace must be to us. We often speak, and rightly so, of Jesus' sacrifice for sin, and we know that when we do, we never even begin to dip into the shallowest part of that deep Well, but let us never forget, brothers and sisters, the sacrifice the Father made when he sent his own Son for sin. Fathers, if your love for your sons is but the palest reflection of the love of the Father for his own Son then what must it have cost the Father to cause his own Son to suffer damnation and wrath that was set against a world of sinners? Yet he did this. He, the Father, initiated this. Willingly he put his own Son to death even the cursed death of the cross to save you. I think I told you many years ago about the the terrible event back in the days of the Great Depression when a Missouri man named John Griffith was the controller of a great railway drawbridge across the Mississippi. One day in the summer of 1937, He decided to take his eight-year-old son, Greg, with him to work. And at noon, John Griffith put the bridge up to allow the ships to pass under and then sat on the observation deck with his son to eat lunch. Time passed quickly, and suddenly he was startled by the shrieking of a train whistle in the distance. Quickly, he looked at his watch and noticed that it was 1.07. The Memphis Express, with 400 passengers on board, was roaring toward the raised bridge. 
He leaped from the observation deck, ran back to the control tower, and just before throwing the master lever, he glanced down for any ships below. And there a sight caught his eye that caused his heart to leap poundingly into his throat. Greg, his son, had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen into the massive gears. And desperately, John's mind whirled to devise a rescue plan, but as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew that there was no way it could be done. Again, with alarming closeness, the train whistle shrieked in the air. He could hear now the clicking of the locomotive wheels over the tracks. That was his own son down there. And yet there were 400 passengers on that train. And John knew what he must do. So he buried his head in his left arm and pushed the master switch forward. And the great massive bridge lowered into place just as the Memphis Express began to roar across the river. When John lifted his head with face Smeared with tears, he looked into the passing windows of the train. And there were businessmen casually reading their afternoon papers and finely dressed ladies in the dining car sipping on coffee and children pushing long spoons into their ice cream sundaes. No one looked at the control house. No one looked at the great gearbox where his son had perished. That illustration is, of course, riddled with problems. God was not hopelessly pressed into the sacrifice of his own son, nor were we merely neutral travelers passing by on the train of life. We have sinned against God. We've offended against him by our rebellion. But here's the point. There wasn't as much as the most disinterested notice of the sacrifice that that father had made of his own son for those people. Let it not be so for us. Dear flock, let not the sacrifice that God the Father has made go unnoticed by you. Then second, take careful notice of the the sacrifice of the Son. Sent by the Father willingly, he came, verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, for your sin, and for mine, he came. But notice what he went through to deal with your sin. He came, Paul writes, in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's an expression used only here in the Bible. It does not mean, as a few have said, that Jesus only appeared to be genuinely human by saying in the likeness of human flesh. That would be to contradict the plain teaching of Scripture and even of uh, Paul himself. Nor does it mean that Jesus was sinful when he says Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He says the likeness of sinful flesh precisely to guard against such an idea that Jesus was sinful because, of course, he was not. And yet the relationship between himself and your sin and mine was such 
that it is described by Paul in another letter of his as Jesus having become sin for us. Now here's the point to quote Murray again. When the Father sent the Son into this world of sin, of misery, of death, He sent Him in a manner that brought Him into the closest possible relationship to sinful humanity that it was possible for Him to come without being Himself sinful. There is emblazoned on the Apostles' language the great truth that when the Father sent the Son, He sent Him for the deepest humiliation conceivable for him who was the son of God and who in his human nature was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. I think on that, Christians, and meditate on it. You will never plumb the depths of the work of God the Son for you who laid aside the glories of heaven to suffer in your place who for our sakes became poor that through his poverty we might become rich that the Lord of glory of heaven should become a man and take the likeness of sinful flesh that the Lord of glory should become the man of sorrows, that the ruler of angels should become lower than the angels, and then humble himself even further to death, and that not just death, but death, the cursed death of the cross. All this he did, says Paul, with artless simplicity, verse 3, for sin. Joining the Father and the Son in the accomplishment of your salvation is third, the Holy Spirit. He too, no less than the Father and the Son, contributes to the economy of your salvation. He applies all of this to you, verse 2, setting you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, verse 4, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Think on this, Christian. Every day of your life, whether that Christian life started at 5 or 15 or 50 or even in your mother's womb before you even came to breathe your first, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who hovered over the deep at creation, the same who descended in the form of a dove at your Savior's baptism has also lived in you. And He continues to live in you. Every day, in every place you go, He never leaves you. Even though you grieve Him so with your sin, still He never leaves you, always with you. Ever He seals salvation to you the freedom you've been given in Jesus Christ, and then turns right around and helps you to walk in the way of freedom toward holiness that you never could have enjoyed. Not one step apart from Him. All three persons, all three actively involved in seeing that you be saved 
and saved to the uttermost so that the work that Christ has begun in you will be carried on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. But Paul is also sure to tell us how that salvation is applied to you by three persons, yes, and that's the first point. And the second is this, Christian, you may rejoice in the confidence that your sal- of your salvation because it involves two great works. First, there is the matter of your justification. That is another way that the Bible describes what elates Paul's spirit and virtually bursts from him in that phrase, no condemnation. What the three persons of the Godhead together have accomplished, the Father by sending him, the Son by willingly going, the Spirit by applying it to you, is nothing less than making you right with him, whose just wrath was set against you like a vast ocean pressing against the dike over your head, ready to burst out on you that wrath that justice for your sin it did break out and it fell on Christ instead and your sin has been settled by God Christ has come as Paul said there for sin that was his errand and for your sin he has made the settlement he has made the payment The penalty, you might say, has been paid. The Father satisfied and the Spirit applies that satisfaction to you. But that's not all. Something else. Another great work God has done and continues to do in you is this. Second, your sanctification. That is just another way the Bible describes the action of the Holy Spirit there in verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We've just made the point that sin's penalty has been paid. Now we go on to say that sin's power has been broken. And these two always go together. They're they're inseparable. You might as well try to divide one side of a coin from another and still have something you can go and spend at the store as to divide these two from one another. Not, mind you, that sanctification and justification are the same thing. They are not. But neither can you biblically separate one from the other. God has joined them together and none can put them asunder. Where God is justified or a a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, he sanctifies him or her. The same Christ who suffered the penalty of sin also condemned the power of sin in you, in your flesh. The same Spirit who applied justification also applies sanctification. That is, makes you holy, and more and more so. Charles Spurgeon imagines it otherwise for just a moment, that salvation... We're merely justification without also being sanctification. And then answers this way. Dear friend, writes the prince of preachers, salvation would be a sadly incomplete affair if it did not deal with this part of our ruined estate. 
We want to be purified as well as pardoned. Justification without sanctification would not be salvation at all. It would be to call the leper clean and leave him to die of his disease. It would forgive the rebellion and allow the rebel to remain an enemy of his king. It would remove the consequences, but overlook the cause. And this would leave an endless and hopeless task before us. Remember that the Lord Jesus came to take away sin, says Spurgeon, in three ways. He came to remove the penalty of sin and the power of sin and at last the presence of sin. It is of this sanctification that Paul writes in verse 4 in those phrases, the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in us and, and walking not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The Christian life is a walk. Salvation is something to be lived. It is something to be worked out with fear and trembling. Even while the Spirit works in you what is pleasing to Him. No longer are you enslaved to sin. Saved from its penalty. You're also liberated from its power. And now by the power of the Spirit in us, we have a walk to walk. Following Him who was sent by the Father to open this way to us. Three great persons. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Two great works. Your justification and your sanctification. Freedom from sin's penalty and from its power. All of it adds up in the mathematics of heaven to one great life. I started this morning pointing out to you one little word. The word no. Now I want to direct your attention to another little word. Now. There is therefore now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm afraid that we as Christians sometimes spend entirely too much time thinking of our lives as sort of a probationary period of sorts (laughs) until the real life begins later on in heaven when we die or when the resurrection takes place at Christ's coming again. But that's not the way the scripture teaches us to think or to live. For all it has to say about looking forward to being at home with the Lord, and it has much, it has much more to say about living eternal life now. Today. We're not waiting for deliverance, Christians. We have it. We have received it. Brothers and sisters, we are living a supernatural life now. There's nothing mundane about your life when measured 
against the scripture when lived in the realization that they are accompanied by the presence of the Holy Spirit leading, guiding, directing, blessing, empowering. In his book about keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, J.I. Packer wrote that the Christian life in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship and outgoing in witness is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain this. Do you see then, Christian, how being justified and continuing to undergo sanctification by the work and the sacrifice and the power of three persons of the Godhead supercharges your life with importance, with eternal significance now and forever? You, Christian, are the object of divine attention every day of your lives. And not only so, but God has actually engaged you in the accomplishment of the work that he is doing in you. He has freed you from condemnation and from the power of sin. Now, Christians, you walk in the Spirit, every one of you. Amen.